Because this is a command that's for all of us right here. We just finished a series, as Mark said, called A Revolutionary Rescue, culminating in Easter where we talked about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What he accomplished on the cross. There's no way in all of our lifetime we could ever overstate what he did. It was so tremendous. We just scratched the surface in the last few weeks. But if Christ died a countercultural death, that's why we called it a revolutionary rescue last, uh, the last series, because he was, in fact, a revolutionary. He was countercultural. He went clearly against the worldview, against the culture of his time, and it cost him his life. And, um, and so he was a revolutionary, which is why they executed him. So if Christ died a countercultural death, how are we to live a countercultural life? We are people of the cross, right? We have all these commands in here, and um, <clears throat> honestly, we don't spend a lot of time talking about them. We're familiar with them. But what does it mean to live a countercultural life in this world? Well, that's what we want to do in this series is bring some more of this to light, continuing on the steps of the series. One is layering on top of the other. And to spend time together afterwards in facilitated discussion to talk about how do we do these things. Remember in the last series we talked about we are now a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. We reign with Christ. The moment I say to you that you're a priest... Your first question should be, on behalf of whom? In fact, the moment I say you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, your first question should be, who am I to sacrifice for? You see, the key words that we use in the New Testament to describe our relationship with the Lord and with the world are all, are all words that get us out of ourselves. A priest is not concerned about themselves. They're concerned about someone else. A sacrifice is not concerned about itself. It's concerned about something else, some, some other person. So the very words they use to describe our life in Christ are words that propel us. They compel us to move out of ourselves into the lives of the people that are... One of the things that comes from that is that we are to look at people differently. Remember, we worked through 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old is gone. The new is now here. We evaluate people differently. We no longer evaluate people and define them by their failings and their sins. We now evaluate them based on the work in the kingdom of what Christ has done for them. The key behind all of this, which is where we culminated at Easter, is that our sins have been forgiven. Remember we said when our sins were forgiven, the glory of the Lord returned to the temple. We are the new temple, the spiritual temple. Um, exile has ended. We have gone through a new exodus. That's Paul's argument in Romans 8 that and 6, 7, and 8, is that we've been freed from slavery to sin. Just like the Israelites were freed from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, we're freed from slavery to sin. So everything is brand new. Everything is brand new on Resurrection Sunday. The world was a different place. We are the start. We are part of the new creation. This means that we proclaim the mighty deeds of God. That's our responsibility. That's what true worship is, is proclaiming the incredible work that he did for us. We reveal the kingdom to those around us. That's where we ended the last series. We reveal the kingdom. There's no billboard out there with flashing lights. God is glorious. There's no plane flying overhead with a banner. 
God is glorious. No, we are the ones that reveal his glory and his kingdom to a world that's so desperately in need of it. Today we're going to look at, and we already read it, we're going to read it again, Matthew 28. It's a verse, series of verses that are very familiar to you. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain. That's important, both those words, Galilee and mountain. We'll come back to that. To the mountain that Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's kind of an odd verse. They worshipped him, but some doubted. How could you doubt the risen Lord Savior? How could that happen? When they saw him, yeah, they worshipped and some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Are you comfortable making disciples? that awkward for you? Is it hard to do? Does it excite you? Does it frighten you? That's what we're going to talk about. There's a lot of scholars over the years that have recognized in Matthew a parallel with the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is um, <clears throat> it's the last book in Moses' life where he gives the law he restates the law given in Exodus. He's standing on the banks of the river. They're getting ready to cross over. They're not over yet. And he's reminding them of these last things, the important things to God. In the book of Deuteronomy are all the curses. If you walk away from the Lord, this is what's going to happen. And all the blessings. If you stay faithful, here's what's going to happen. And then at the end of the book, God says, I know you. I know your hearts. You're going to fail. It's going to happen. Which is a really good lesson for us to realize that on the day that God saved your soul, on the day that you were regenerated, He already knew the worst sin you're going to commit. You see, God is never surprised. He's not up there wringing His hands, worried and anxious. No, He knows exactly what's going to happen. That should bring comfort to you. That that's the God that we serve. He tells the Israelites, you're going to fail. And so... I'm going to read a series of verses here in a few moments where he's promising because this is all fulfilled right here in this verse that we just read, the Great Commission, and ongoing after that. But first, um, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. So we get the setting of where Jesus takes these disciples. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's a very important little phrase. This is at the beginning of Matthew. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. This metaphor of great light, those living in darkness, is used throughout the Bible to capture the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not have the law of Moses. 
They lived in darkness. And so there's several different places where the prophecy about the light coming to those in darkness, that's us, by the way. That's us. We are the recipients of that. So he goes to Galilee, the land of the Gentiles. So Matthew reveals that Galilee is a place of the Gentiles. Jesus is going to launch his universal mission to reach all the nations, all those flags out there, from this place, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he's going to start his mission, international mission, in a place filled with Gentiles. All through Deuteronomy, God gives his orders from a mountain. Not going to read them all, there's so many. Um, But Moses is often found standing on a mountain, telling the people what God said. And so it's not surprising. As God gave Israel their marching orders through Moses at Mount Sinai, Jesus gives his disciples here their commission here on this mountain. He's standing on the mountain. That's how he finishes, that's how Matthew finishes the book. All right, let's go back now and let's look at some of these. Verse 17 of uh, the Great Commission. We're going to work our way through each of these verses. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Again, I said that's kind of an odd verse to stick in there. This word has more the idea of hesitation rather than unbelief. You know, I don't know what it was like to one week before be eating the Passover meal with Jesus. And then he dies. All of your dreams are crushed. You're now in trouble because they crucified him as a revolutionary. And that means that you're in trouble because you associated with him. Your life is at risk. They all scattered and hid. And then he appears on Resurrection Sunday. What do you do with that? No wonder they hesitated. Do you ever hesitate in your faith? somebody when you might have an opportunity? You ever wonder, is this all real? People ask me, do I ever doubt? Of course I doubt, I'm human. <laughs> I was walking to the amphitheater last summer, and, and as I was walking down toward the amphitheater, I thought, Lord, if this is all a big sham, I'm going to be ticked. <laughs> it doesn't last very long because I have too much that can no longer be classified as... Um, Circumstantial, coincidental. Faith gets restored. But sure, that's why it's called faith. Because we believe in what we can't see. Hesitation in the midst of belief is a paradox that most of you know about. You're not aware. No wonder they were hesitating. It's like, is this real? I mean, the emotions haven't even had time to adjust and heal. And settle. They go from Passover to crucifixion to loneliness and death to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. He's standing before them. And later they're, they're with him on the mountain and they're scratching their heads and they're thinking, what on earth, literally, is going on? No wonder they hesitated. What we see here is that the disciples are still growing in their faith and understanding. Take heart. You weren't alone and you're not alone. Every Christian before you goes through that hesitation. Then in verse 18, the next verse, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He begins the charge by establishing his all-encompassing authority as risen Lord. That's the beginning point. You know, uh, any of you serve in the military? Let me see if you served in the military. I served in the Navy. 
And uh, it's a well-known, very, a very uh, comfortable, familiar tradition in the Navy when a captain changes command on board a ship. I got to actually go through that. Our captain got promoted to admiral, and uh, a new captain came and relieved him. He read his orders, and uh, then he turns and salutes the uh, outgoing captain and says, I relieve you. And the captain, outgoing captain salutes him back and says, I stand relieved. And in that one second, authority has passed. Right then, this is what happens. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 2 that Jesus disarmed all the powers and authorities, all of them, when he said it is finished and he died on the cross. They have no more power. They can only do what God allows them. He disarmed them. All authority, that's where he begins. This is a clear reference, by the way, back to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read this to you, Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. This is Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. This is fulfilled right here in the Matthew verse. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. That's all the nations, by the way. That's the Abrahamic promise. All the nations will be blessed through you. So all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is what's happening right here on this mountain. When you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, several times, four or five times, it says every tribe, every people, every nation, every language is standing before the Lord. That's what's symbolized by all these flags hanging out here. Ministry to the nations, to the Gentiles. All right, listen to these verses in Deuteronomy. They capture this idea. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. The Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Or Deuteronomy 10.14, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth and everything in it. What does the psalm say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. You're a steward. We've talked about that. Deuteronomy 10.17, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. You see, this authority is heavenly as well as earthly. Now think about what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. What's the next phrase? On earth as it is in heaven. Let's say it together. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is fulfilled right here. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is now enthroned as the king, the ruler, the judge. Everything the Old Testament looked forward to, there it is. He's now enthroned in that rightful place of complete authority. You have nothing to be afraid of. And then in verse 19, he goes on. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations. That's the command, the actual command. Then you have baptizing and teaching. Those are, are, sorry to be a little technical, those are participles following the command. The command is to make disciples. 
A shift right here has occurred in God's plan of redemption. All of redemptive history took a shift, a turn right here. You see, prior to this, the mission for Israel was centripetal in nature. Centripetal. What that means is they were to stay in the Holy Land and the nations would come to them. That's what that means. We've read about that. We read 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 6 and 7 at the dedication of the temple where Solomon in his great prayer says, And Lord, when the nations hear about your great name, for indeed they will hear about it, and they come to this temple and they pray, hear their prayers, answer their prayers, and bless them so that they will know that you are the one true God. So the assumption was that they would come to the temple. Okay, starting with this verse, we now move into a centrifugal mission where we now move out. We now take the message to the nations. It could be a mile away. It could be 20,000 miles away. We take the message out. This is a messianic act. It's critical that the command here is not to evangelize, but to perform the broader deeper task of discipling the nations. Most of you, when you hear this, your natural inclination is to think of evangelism. You picture yourself coming up across a stranger who can argue you, out-argue you, who can uh, outthink you, put you in a corner, in a box. That's what many people think of. But that's not the command. The command is to make disciples. At staff meeting this week, I asked the staff, when you think of disciples, what do you think of? And, and uh, one of them said, Family. I thought, that is a great description. That is a great description. Where in the Bible did the disciples come to faith? Okay, we have a lot of words to describe that. Being saved, believing in Jesus, all of that. The, the technical aspect is regenerated. Where were the disciples regenerated? It doesn't tell us, does it? We know for sure one never was, Judas. Yet he's called a disciple. Thomas, after the death, he said, I'm not going to believe. I love it. Two-year-old, I'm not going to believe. Not until I see the scars. What did Jesus say? Take a look. Fact, stick your hand right here. Then he believed. Peter denied him three times. All the disciples scattered and left him in his moment of trial. I think we can make a good case that none of the 12 were regenerated. But we know for sure one wasn't, but they were all called disciples. What was Jesus' last word to Judas at, in the garden when he was being betrayed? Friend. Friend. That's grace. The heart of discipleship is relationship. That's what it is. You see, discipleship is not an event. It's a process the word, at the very core of the word, is the idea of making a student, a learner. Somebody who is intrigued by what you believe. Because you have the words of life. That's what Peter called them. It's someone who is intrigued and wants to know. Look what he says in verse 19, the second part. Here's how we do it. This is the means by which you make disciples. So go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Baptism, 
Jesus reveals now that baptism is the primary sacrament of initiation. It is the step into this Christian faith. So I don't want you to think that making disciples is just purely being friends. That is the beginning of it. And that's the, that's the journey in which discipleship occurs. But it has a clear focus, a clear purpose of bringing people into a relationship with the God that you know. And baptism is one of the ways that that happens. This emphasizes the beginning of an entirely new relationship with God. How many of you were here last week, saw the baptisms of the two young men? Let me see. Was that a joyful occasion? That was, wasn't it? Baptism is about you get to the point where you make a public assertion in front of your friends, I believe in Jesus. That is a process to get there. From never knowing about Jesus to baptism. That's not an event. It may be an event. It may be one-time sharing. But most of the time, in my experience in 40 years, it's not. It's a long process and takes time. Jesus, with the Trinitarian formula, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is bringing together all of his statements about his Father, himself, and the Holy Spirit. You see, you're being baptized into a relationship with the one true living God. That's what it means. That's really what the goal is of our friendship. Then he goes on to teaching. I love this part as a teacher. Theology is just as important as conversion. Teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 32. We're at the very end of the book. So one of the very last things that Moses says before he dies and they cross over to the promised land. Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you to, this, to do this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They're not just idle words for you. That's what he said. They're not just idle words for you. They are your life. They are your life. Think about sin this way. Sin is identifying all the obstacles that keep you from joy. Teachings of Christ are all the pathways that get you to joy. Think of it that way. You've heard me use the metaphor, some of you, that if I have a four-year-old son and I say, don't run out in the street, you're going to get hurt. If I never told him about it and he ran out in the street, would he get hurt? He would, right? Therefore, it's an act of grace as a father if I say, don't run out in the street. You're going to get hurt. That's what sin is, an act of grace. If God had never told us about alcoholism, would it still be destructive? Yes. And some of you still had to find out the hard way. Right? It was an act of grace that God says, don't do this. The identification of sin is an act of grace. It identifies obstacles by, and the teachings of Jesus are the pathways that lead you to joy. I think about it. Entering interesting verse in uh, John chapter fourteen. This is a verse that has captured my attention for over twenty-five years. Uh, this one verse. I first read it. I was completely stumped. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. It's that last part that stumped me. Go ahead and keep it up there on the screen. I will show myself to them. You know, I have 
the choice of how much I reveal of myself to you. I choose that. You don't know the whole me. You don't. You, you know what I reveal to you, what I show to you. You don't know what it's like when I am short-tempered. If you really want to know what I'm like, ask Nancy. Better yet, ask my kids. They would love to tell you. Okay? Yeah, there's a side of me as well, just like there is to each of you. And so somehow, obedience, obedience is tied to Jesus' decision to reveal himself to us. He just doesn't do it indiscriminately. You can't just walk up and say, oh, I'm going to learn about the Lord. It doesn't work that way. Just like it doesn't with you. You could try that with me all you want, and it's going to be whatever I decide to reveal to you. Jesus is no different. And he says right here, he will show himself to those who obey him. And that's captured my attention for over 25 years, re- reflecting on what that means. And I have some thoughts. Have you ever been around somebody who's not very forgiving? Are they fun to be with? No, they're kind of harsh, critical, hard, caustic, right? On the other side, if you've been around somebody who is a very forgiving person, they're a joy to be with, aren't they? Now, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that we should forgive one another because Christ Jesus has already forgiven us. We don't forgive each other because they repent. That's not why you forgive. You forgive. And if you've ever had to forgive somebody that hurt you deeply especially when they weren't sorry, that's got to be the most difficult thing in all of creation. Isn't it? And so when you start practicing the discipline of forgiveness, because that is your obligation, not because somebody apologizes. It's not that at all. They may never feel sorry. You start forgiving them because... They're worthy. There comes a point in time when you realize how difficult it is and your gaze turns to heaven and you say, is that what it was like to forgive me? And the answer is yes. Then you begin to experience Jesus in a whole new way because it cost him his life to forgive you. You are not easy to forgive. Not one of you. So as you practice it, then Jesus shows himself to you. This is important in his whole teaching, making disciples. The last thing he says, verse 20, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Deuteronomy 31, again we're at the very end of Deuteronomy. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is what he's saying right here. This is what's behind the the name Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. He starts off by saying God will be with us, and he concludes by saying God will never leave us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us, for all of eternity. All right, Galatians 3.8, we've read it many times. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So he starts Matthew... Okay, by affirming that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And he, con- and he says he's going to go to the Galilee and, uh, of the Gentiles. He concludes Matthew by saying, go to all the nations. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. He ends his gospel with a mandate to go to all the missions. This means that the church is the primary means of fulfilling the mission of of Abraham to bless the nations. That is our job, is to bless the nations.
We are to be a blessing. In other words, Jesus' words are meant to be a blessing for all people. And we are the conduit, the vehicle by which that occurs. So what does this mean, to be a blessing? I have a couple of thoughts just to stimulate the discussion that we're going to have in lunch afterwards. And again, I'd like to invite you to just uh, come sit around tables and let's talk about it and process it. Our natural tendency is to think worst case, right? The one who's able to outthink us and outargue us. That's how we naturally think. I think of people in two broad categories when I'm talking to non-Christians. There are those whose worldview answers their questions and they're basically happy. How do you tell somebody that makes 250000 a year, drives a BMW, has 2.3 children and a swimming pool, that uh, they need Christ? Fortunately, by God's grace in a broken world, you don't hardly ever find those people. They're pretending. The much larger group, the second category, their worldview is no longer answering their questions. And here's what it looks like. I just found out I have stage 4 lung cancer. I just found out my spouse has been cheating on me all these years. I just found out my adult child is, uh, has a drug abuse problem. Those are the realities of the world that we live in. If we take the time to explore with people, that's what we find is going on behind the eyeballs in the lives of people. Most people are over there. So the reality of the person who can outthink you and outargue you into a corner is not a true reality. You know why? Because none of this is by chance. None of it. God's going to route to you the person that you have what they need to hear. It's not accidental. I get those people. But I train for that. Mark gets those people. He trained for that. Judy Deal gets those people. She trained for that. But the chances are very slim that you'll get those kind of people. The people you get are the people that have, you have what they need to hear. That's the basic message. Because God is the one, like a traffic cop, orchestrating people through your lives. The biggest problem we have is that we just don't pay attention. When somebody says, I have cancer, the door just flew wide open for ministry. Wide open. So, there's a couple of starting points for making disciples. Number one is a genuine love for people. A genuine love. If you don't love people, they're going to know it. You cannot hide it. It's impossible. I'm reading a book. Thank you, Jody. book by Henry Drummond, a 19th century Scottish theologian called The Greatest Thing in the World, Experiencing the Enduring Power of Love. It's a fantastic little book. It's easy to read. I read it in just about an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, we have them out there on the uh, book stand if you want to get it and read it. Listen to what he says about love. First of all, let me set the stage. He argues love is the greatest. What does Paul say? Three things. Faith, hope, and love. Which is the greatest? Love. You ever think about why? Faith finds its fulfillment in sight. Faith turns into sight. Hope turns into reality of fulfillment. So love endures through everything. Faith becomes sight. Hope becomes fulfillment, but love is always present. So in that context, here's what he says about love. What makes a good... Now, remember, this is 19th century English, so he uses the word man to refer to male and female. What makes a man a good cricketer? Practice. What makes a man a good artist, good sculptor, good musician? 
Practice. What makes a man a good linguist, a good stenographer? Practice. What makes a man uh, a good man? Practice. Nothing else. Nothing else. There is nothing capricious about religion. We, know, we do not get the soul in different ways, under different laws, from those in which we get the body and the mind. If a man does not exercise his arm, he develops no bicep muscles. If a man does not exercise his soul, he acquires no muscle in the soul, no strength of character, no vigor of moral fiber, no beauty of spiritual growth. Love is not a thing of enthusiastic emotion. It is a rich, strong, vigorous expression of the whole round Christian character, the Christ-like nature in its fullest development. And the constituents of this great character are only to be built up by ceaseless practice. You do not naturally love. Romans 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. Love is a discipline that you must learn. And the only way you can learn it is by practice. You know, the greatest thing God could do for your enemy is to wrap them into your life. If God really cares about your enemy, then the greatest surprise he can give them is to wrap them into your life. Oh, he expects his friends to love them. That doesn't mean anything to care for him. But when you as an enemy in his moment of need shows authentic love, that's the last thing he expects. That's why the command, the law is summed up with love. God love people. Because you are giving someone a taste of something that they can only imagine. You've already felt it. You've already experienced it because you have the Holy Spirit. That's part of the fruit. So the greatest gift God could give your enemy is to route them right directly into your life. Wow. Ouch. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. The second thing you need aside from love is a genuine curiosity. Curious, to be curious about them. What do they think? You know, you can't convict anybody. You have no power to do that. That is purely, exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. And the greatest thing that you can learn in the Christian life is to back off and give the Spirit space. We want to wrap it all up in a nice, neat little bow as quickly as possible. We want to pull up the dump truck, tell them all about Christ, have them convert and become a, a saint in about three minutes. It doesn't happen that way in my experience. By the way, the same thing happens with sin. We want to confront them, have them repent and change and become a new person. Just like It doesn't happen that way. It's a process. And the Spirit is the only one that can do the conviction. The greatest gift you can give your friends is space. Let them be who they are. I have a friend of mine who's a Christian. We've been a Christian for... He, uh, not a Christian, I'm sorry. He's not a Christian, but I love being with him. We've been hanging out for a year and a half. It took a year and a half, and he finally asked me, are you as happy as you seem? That's a great question. I thought about it, and I said, um, for the most part, yeah, not always, but for the most part. And he said, why? That's the Holy Spirit doing the work. Now, as Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense and explanation for why you believe. Now I can explain about Christ. That's what making a disciple is.
At lunch today, we're going to discuss further how to move into people's lives with the power of the Spirit and not your own power. That's what making disciples is all about. Father, thank you for your love for us. Your eternal, patient love where you overlook so much of what we do. You overlook our sin. You overlook, um, you overlook our, our harsh thoughts toward you, our hatred and hostility toward you. You overlook all that, and you never give up. You never gave up on us. Thank you for that. Help us to be that kind of church and those kinds of people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.